Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com, vetgurus at gmail.com and vetgurus at Patreon, patreon.com, vetgurus, Mark. We're taking over the web. (laughs) We um, had a couple of little technical issues, didn't we, before the start of this podcast, hence that is the quick introduction and our contact lists and um, places to go and see and do. It's all at vetgurus.com, Mark, isn't it? That's the place to go for our for our podcast. So, Mark, there you go. So we had an interesting little discussion before this before this uh, podcast, Mark. What have you been up to in the last six months? <laughs> the last six <laughs> months. Um, it's been. I was telling you just before we started, Brendan, that um, we've had. Uh, I'd be interested in um, some feedback from our listeners. Um, uh, particularly those that are involved in exotic practice because we about, I don't know, once every four or five weeks we have just a day where, I don't know, despite all our best efforts, we lose a whole bunch of patients. Um, there's There'll be a couple of emergencies that come in. There'll be a couple of cases that we've watched for a while and we'll just have a day that, um, that four or five patients die all in um, close concert. And and the other thing I find about these days is they're often patients that um, have particularly devoted owners. Um, and so they're just very emotional days, Brendan. We've had one of those recently and, I don't know, it takes the wind out of your sails. It's lucky that I have such a support network, not not uh, least of which is um, this podcast, to, uh, to, you know, debrief and to make sure I can cope. They are a bit of a downer those days, Mark, and I probably have more of those ones than you with your superior skills, Mark. I'm sure you're saving much more animals than I do. But they're the sort of days that you think, gee, maybe I should be working in an office and looking out the window to the rat race and um, and not having to deal with life and death situations all the time. But then you think, gee, it's fun dealing with these animals, isn't it? And we were talking about one of our potential topics for a future podcast, and, and it's fun dealing with these, um, dealing with playing with the equipment, getting to see all these amazing animals and, and these great clients that, that um, we, we see 99% of the times. And I definitely don't those want cl- to think that, um, you know, I'm probably started the whole podcast on a bit of a downer start stating that, but I also uh, return to the privilege that it is to be involved, even in those cases where animals don't make it. Um, I do I do get a bit of a uh, kick out of um, making sure that they're not suffering, you know, uh, dealing with their pain relief, making sure we manage um, their perception of their environment, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you entirely. I feel particularly blessed to be in the profession we're in, and uh, and and I know you love playing with all those toys, Brendan. But um, but Dad, don't take me the wrong way. It's not a downer. 
I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, uh, um, it's just that every once in a while you need to set yourself up with those support structures and have a debrief, I reckon. Yes, and you know you're not doing well when, when your staff ta- start calling you Dr. Death, <laughs> hey, Mark, and um, um, Touchwood, it's been a, a while since they've mentioned that name to me, but I expect it will happen again soon, yes. So let's get off down as Mark, and I think we should jump into, we won't, talk, we won't do any emails this week, we'll jump into a couple of quick news stories because I think the topic this week, as usual, is a cracker mark. It's a beauty. Um, the top 10 tips for dealing with snakes uh, for clinicians who don't deal with them that often, um, which probably includes you and I occasionally <laughs> when we're seeing lots of dogs and cats some weeks, aren't we? Um, some days, I don't know whether you get it, where some days you just seem to get a big run on particular species. And you might, for instance, in my practice, it might be a day when we see just all rabbits potentially all one day, and then it's lots of reptiles, and then it may be very few unusual pets and we're seeing um, those those interesting animals called dogs and cats mark we see some of them some days so but it all keeps us happy and interested and and it's better than looking out that window and um down on those little ants of people walking around isn't it mark from the ant nest itself you don't want to be in that ant nest brendan I'm going to take the first news story, Mark, and I found this one very interesting, and it is about the woman who saved the Icelandic goat from extinction, Mark. Have you read this little article I sent to you? It is. I'm fascinated by it, Brendan. I didn't even know know there was Icelandic goats. And the other thing that that, uh, fascinated me about it was um, I'm just so keen to hear you make the pronunciations of the uh, various locations in the story. <laughs> We're not going there, Mark. We may go. We may try, but I, I'll butcher butcher the pronounce, pronunciation. There you go. I can't even pronounce pronunciation um, as I go along, mate. The Icelandic goat has been on the verge of extinction for many years, and it went to well below 100 animals worldwide, Mark, in the late 1990s. And luckily, this woman, Joanna, we'll just call her Joanna, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) We'll put the link um, to her her surname. (laughs) (laughs) You might have to take over this story, Mark. I think I think the interesting thing about those Icelandic names is that um, that you, you do an awesome job of uh, phonetically sounding things out. I love your pronunciation, and so Thorvald Stottir um, would be the phonetic pronunciation. But so many of these names from uh, the north of Europe, the 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 the, the you know the the um, each syllable does not the letters don't mean the same thing so even though joanna's surname could be pronounced thorvald stop dear um i don't I, I have a sneaking suspicion that i've butchered it as badly as anyone could ever so yes and she needs a few more consonants <laughs> in her surname i think so in 1999 she was given the chance to adopt what were thought to be the last four brown hornless Icelandic goats on earth, Mark. And before then, she'd only raised animals like sheep and chickens. And she decided it was going to be her mission to try and bring them back from 
extinction. And she she used them for that. They interestingly enough, they're, they're renowned for their exquisite cashmere that um, is is taken from them. But they fell out of popularity because of. Um, Sheep provided more fatty meat and wool than than them, so just having them for the cashmere wasn't wasn't enough to keep them around. So fast forward um, several decades, and she started producing jams and cheeses and soaps and strings and all sorts of things from from these Icelandic goat to try and keep them go- going, and 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 it was working. But then she came into financial trouble um, when Iceland spread um, around 2010 um, she had issues there and she thought it was just about all over and this is where the interesting thing kicks in mark that i f- piqued my interest that game of thrones game of thrones have saved the icelandic sheep because they were featured during the filming of a few episodes of game of thrones and once the episodes aired there was a huge upsurge in interest with them, and now they've been basically saved because she ended up with lots of, lots of, lots of people donating to her. And now, I think there are roughly around six hundred to eight hundred of them in existence, largely due to the commitment she made, but also the appearance on Game of Thrones. So that's a little twist with this story, Mark. So. The bottom line with that is the moral of the story is watching your favourite soap opera or soap show may be helping the planet, Mark. <laughs> That's a long bow to draw. <laughs> it isn't. It's a very it's a very short bow, and I think it's very important that we keep watching our our series on on television. Now I'm trying to work out how watching something like. Um, the very terrible remake of um, the Australian comedy Rush, Russell Coit's um, Aussie Adventures um, will help the planet, but um, it, it gives me a bit of a belly laugh. And for those overseas subscribers, um, sh- should look up this particular Australian um, comedy um, series. And um, I tend to cringe at it a little bit these days because the, most of the jokes are very lame, aren't they, Mark? Mark but you know, how, you know how we abhor lame jokes, Brendan. It's just not in it. True. Our nature. But the thing about um, Russell, I love the show too, um, and I love anyone who um, is happy. I think that's one of the good things, generally speaking, about Australians. We're pretty happy to have a belly laugh at our own expense. Um, and uh, and certainly Russell Coit does that. But it's the same joke, Brendan. He's doing the same joke over and over again. I want him to come up with a new one. He needs a new joke. Perhaps um, he's very similar to us. <laughs> <laughs> Respect. <laughs> So there we go. I'm very happy that this woman, let's just call her Johanna, um, has saved the Icelandic goat from extinction. And we will we'll have a little link to the story. And there's a video there as well, Mark, and they are very cute goats, I must admit, uh, on our website, vetgurus.com. So that's my good news story. Mark, what is your good news story? Um, mine is a good news story as well, Brendan. And I know we tend to, when we talk about threatened species, one of our favourite little topics, we um, we often uh, um, maybe dwelling on the, well, it's a negative topic. There's so many bloody threatened species. Um, but uh, this is a story from UQ, from the University of Queensland, um, which, uh, which is a bit of a upbeat one and it talks about um, a number of our um, Australian freshwater species of fish 
Um, and those fish species, it's really interesting that over the last four or five decades, it's become increasingly apparent that many of those populations are unique to the individual waterway that they uh, inhabit. Um, and and so with the development of, uh, um, uh, you know, human in uh, sub, uh, suburbia and um, the decrease in uh, um, the natural environment and particularly even on the periphery of urban uh areas on the east coast there's still dams and weirs uh, structures like these which change which make the waterways more suitable for humans but make uh, change the local ecosystem dramatically and um and so it's a uh, um a, a relatively simple structure um the formation of culverts which allow fish to navigate past man-made barriers in the um, in the river system. Um, and it's just a, a, a trial to uh, see how um, uh, um, structures that help pe- the fish to get past the, uh, the uh, various intervening structures um, uh, in, encourage the fish to, um, to improve because particularly the smallest, you know, the fry, the littlest fish, they're the ones that are affected by these barriers that they can't get past. And so um, they limit the ability of the, um, the fish to get along. But um, these baffles that have been developed by UQ um, uh, added along various, added, added along the, the barriers, the structures which uh, become, you know, water flow over them is more turbulent. Um, the whole study of fluid dynamics over those structures has allowed the formation of these baffles, which will allow very small fish to move past more easily. Um, and so I think uh, that uh, encourages them to, you know, uh, inhabit a greater part of the uh, um, the river system and therefore allows them to be uh, more well insulated from little regional events. So this is a, I'm fascinated that um, areas as uh, seemingly far removed from natural history as uh, um, fluid dynamics, hydrodynamics, and the study of turbulence about these uh, various ba- uh, culverts and dams and waterways um, can have such a direct uh, impact on how uh, the fish can survive in those habitats yes and it reminds me of the the methods they use to help wildlife crossings generally like i don't know whether you have them in your area the um allowing possums for instance to 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 go across roads um by putting netting uh, um over over the roads between power poles for instance and 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 tunnels underneath underneath major freeways etc to allow wildlife corridors to continue and uh, yeah we often forget about fish don't we um with those sorts of things um and and fluid dynamics mark was that one of your um <laughs> big subjects um when you did when you did physics of at course, the university Brendan. you know laminar flow turbulence flow of course we all didn't we all do that um actually we did didn't we I, the basics of science i must uh, let me go down a little <laughs> rabbit hole <laughs> again one of my one of my subjects i did oh, i did it for a full year at university I, I did a full year of advanced mathematics um at university and uh, i found it quite challenging i must admit um although my eccentric 
lecturer or, uh, was um, who kept me going. And believe it or not, Mark, and this was my mathematics lecturer at university, his name was Mr. <laughs> memory. His surname was Memory, um, although he had a very poor memory, I must admit. And most of the students used to play up during his um, during his lectures that he would talk about advanced matrices and and all these sorts of concepts that I found um, fascinating. And yet I could never quite get my head around them. But um, yeah, I think the pure the pure sciences and that are um, a real challenge, but they're very important. Um, a lot of those subjects and students who who get into the veterinary course if we stick with with veterinary science um you do need those foundations of all those mathematics and and physics and and um, chemistry um unfortunately in those first year or two they're a bit of a slog aren't they mark um you don't you, you think you're going into the course to start to be a veterinarian and yet you're studying these fairly dry subjects and you think how do how the hell do these fit into becoming a veterinarian oh, it's only it's only later on in the course that you think, gee, I wish I had attended those <laughs> classes and stayed awake because they were so important. And the more you, the more I look back, all those core subjects, uh, I wish I had have paid more attention. As usual, you've let down a rabbit hole that is like, you know, I've got a bit of a, a uh, soapbox. Uh, I, I, I despair that um, all of our uh discourse at a sort of organisational level, at a political level, is um, talks about the utility and the vocational application of science, um, that, you know, there has to be a, uh, universities have to generate an income from the science they do. And yet the very nature of that, those basic sciences is such that you can't predict which ones are going to, you know, you can't bet, you can't bet that this, you know, um, this particular topic is going to provide a um, a, um, a feedback, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think we, as a society, more generally, we should value those uh, basic endeavours that we don't have. You know, that, that we don't necessarily want them to have a, a financial economic return. We just want to do them because they're a good thing to do, and um, and the economic return will happen if we do that. Um, where it's less likely to happen if we actively pursue it and narrow down the the aims and objectives and scope of work of these courses. So, so uh, that's my um, my soapbox. You know, I'm the same as you, Brendan. I think we should um, just enjoy these basic sciences for the pleasure that they give. Yes, absolutely. And I think it gets back to veterinary science in a more specific level in that both of us have been involved a, a little bit with with teaching in academia, and and you've seen it go from we'll, we'll teach the core sciences uh, to to the complete opposite at one stage where no we, we we can't teach veterinary students everything, so we'll just teach teach them basic life skills and and how to how to do a search um, for, for conditions, and it's gone from one extreme to the other, and I think. What needs to happen is that it'll end up. It ends up somewhere in the middle there. But um, at one stage, there were students graduating from some of the universities here in Australia that I think were were, the, were they didn't have the the core skills that would see them in good stead um, for when they were out there in practice because they they knew a lot about a little and they needed to to, to know a lot about the course core stuff which they didn't um, know and um, the the um, the universities soon realise that maybe we need to 
um, concentrate on the core core product with them. But yeah, we are down a bit of a rabbit hole here, Mark. We should get on to our on to our main story or our main topic this week, Mark. And it's and we're reptiles this week, aren't we? We we are going to talk about top tips for treating snakes. Um, maybe we should add another T in there. I don't know where, how we can fit that in there, Mark. Mark. But we're going to go through ten, I think ten. 10 just basic and so perhaps not so basic tips or recommendations for clinicians who, who maybe don't deal with reptiles and snakes in particular that often or frequently and um, our recommendations on things to think about when dealing with snakes, Marks. Do you I want to take number one? I would Brendan, and I just wanted to I, – I don't think you can have enough snakes in your life. I think that, well, I'm going to – stick my hand up here and say we need to do more podcasts about snakes. So this is a great start for me. So the first point, tip, top tip number one, does begin with a T, it's transport. Um, and I think uh, this is one of those things that at our practice we really get our reception staff to pay a little bit of attention to the um, the, uh, uh, the at the time of a, a consult being booked to talk to people about the way that they bring their snake into the hospital. Um, and we certainly have had people show up at times with a relatively large python just draped over their shoulder. Um, and obviously this is not good for the snake and, and certainly not good for the um, less well-prepared people arriving in the waiting room. So we regularly talk to people about using um, various Bags specially designed, specifically designed, um, very deep canvas or uh, nylon reptile bags. Um, pillow slips are convenient for many um, mid middle-sized to small-sized snakes. We often place those bags, which because they're dark and flexible, they give the snake a sense of a hide, um, and so they'll be much more relaxed. But we'll often place those in... Uh, uh, various boxes and um, or maybe even in large, the case of large snakes, garbage bins to um, to ensure that they can't be uh, um, squashed, to ensure that a reptile in a, a, a flexible bag can't be crushed underneath someone's foot or something like that. So that would be the typical way we ask people to bring them in. We often also ask them, particularly during the winter, um, to provide some form of supplemental heat while the reptile's being transported because we know they're going to be healthiest at their preferred optimal temperature. Um, and so uh, a, uh, some form of um, uh, microwaved heat sack or um, a uh, heat pad of some description um, put into the box uh, with the reptile, with the uh, legless reptile in a bag and um, that's usually the way we get them brought to us, Brendan. Excellent. Well, number two is patient history. And the tip here is for vets who aren't dealing with reptiles very often is to develop or steal, and listeners are welcome to jump to either of our websites and um there's certainly a link to it on on my clinic website, Mark, of client patient history forms, which we ask clients to download and fill in before they arrive at the clinic, Mark. So it will, would include details for snakes. It would include details such as enclosure, temperature, 
cleaning, housing, feeding schedule, um, temperature gradients of the enclosure, substrate, um, those sorts of things. So the advantage of this is it can then save you a lot of time in the consultation because what I, I try and do is make sure that all this information is entered into the patient history, ideally by the reception staff when that uh, patient and client arrives. And you can then peruse that before you head into the consultation, Mark. And, and it's amazing how many times you have a tentative diagnosis of, it, of the condition, even before you've seen the patient, because you know there's inadequate husbandry often, unfortunately, um, with some of these um, reptiles or a lot of these reptiles. And, and you already realise you need to talk to the client about what they are doing incorrectly um with with the um with the patient with their little patient their their snake that they have at home so a patient history form so it's a big time saver mark and it is a big time saver brendan number two is indeed and number three um is the opposite as well in a sense it's a quest it's a request to slow down um uh the, the number three is our examination from afar and it's one of those things when i go into a consult room very often people are starting to unclip the top of the plastic box and pull the the, um, the snake out and uh, um, and uh, you know start to poke and prod it and show you the lesion or whatever. Um, and oftentimes I, well, almost invariably I get some very very useful uh, uh, um, information. First of all, by just uh, allowing everyone in the consult room to settle down, but then to get the snake out of the um, out of the bag, let it maybe sit in the tub or um, uh, allow it to move across the exam table. If it's a big snake, we'll uh, allow it to go over the consultation room floor. Um, give it some space. Give it um, maybe the bag that it was in or a towel to hide under so it doesn't, uh, you know, they'll, if they feel horribly exposed, they'll um, get, maybe get a bit whippy and, and uh, you won't tell much. But that not necessarily touching them first up, giving them a chance to move and observing them from a distance will often highlight things that are not apparent uh, immediately any other way. Um, and uh, their response to the hide, their response to movement, the way they flick their tongue, um, all those sort of normal behaviours that you can see from a distance, I think uh, they're very, very good to um, to identify before you put the snake in hand, Brendan. Excellent. And I think it's, it's the equivalent of the dog or the cat that comes into the client and you don't immediately jump to grabbing the dog and the cat and auscultate in the chest. You, you have a little chat to the client, you look at the dog, you see that it does have a lame left hind leg and realise that maybe it is a cruciate that you need to book in for next week. So it's it's just there's always that temptation, isn't there, Mark, with unusual pets to, to reach out and grab the animal and start looking at it immediately and examining the animal from, a, from afar is certainly the way to go with them. Number four, Mark, is, and you hinted at this with the previous um previous um, point and that is medicating the animal and making sure allowing the snake to attain its preferred body temperature before you medicate regardless of what type of medication you were giving whether it's an anesthetic an antibiotic an anti-inflammatory or analgesia or something completely different the it will not be able to metabolize that that medication unless it 
uh, is at its preferred body temperature. So again, it's sitting back, it's warming the patient up, it's allowing it to then work, the medication to work um, once the animal's warmed up. So take your time do things properly and warm up the patient. It's a great point number four because people do often take the snake out of its normal enclosure. And so just emphasising to them that whatever medication they might have to give at home, they need to ensure that preferred optimal temperature is reached. That's a a really important thing. And number five, go on. And I think, sorry, Mark, and I think it relates back to that transport one as well and, and no matter how much we we mention and, and our reception nurses say to clients to make ensure you bring in your reptile to the clinic warm and it has some sort of um, heat pack with it. It's amazing how many of these animals you you examine them after you've done the examination from afar and you touch that reptile and it is stone cold. Um, do you find that extremely Far too frequent? often and it seals the opportunity to make those observations that uh, not only... Will the the uh, reptile not at its POTZ will be um, uh, not absorb the medication, but they just won't show you the signs that you need to help your diagnosis. So make sure you get them to their preferred optimal temperature zone at all times. Which leads me on to number five, Brendan. Um, number five is hospitalisation, um, and I think um, the the there's some very important points to make about hospitalising them. Um, the first one for me is um, to, I just feel so much better when I've got secure enclosures. Um, and by secure, that may just be, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of tubs that we've had people bring them in, in. But just making sure that the snake can't get out gives me a great peace of mind. I always choose the We've got a dedicated room in the hospital that's warmer, that's maintained warmer, has its own um, air conditioning. Um, and so it is uh, uh, um, the background temperature in the room is well above the, the uh, background temperature outside, except on the very hottest days. Um, and then the individual enclosures, the vivaria in that room, um, they're heated as well so that we can keep those reptiles at that preferred optimal temperature zone. Um, the, uh, I like the idea that um, the enclosure should be as multi-purpose as possible, and we certainly have enclosures that uh, we can put at times, birds or reptiles. Um, they're fiberglass, so they're easy to clean. They've got uh, the glass front, so it's relatively easy to observe, maybe even from the other side of the room. Um, we do have external lights in the hospital room, but we don't have uh, lights in the enclosures, and we're generally only keeping the animals there for a day or two, so we don't uh, necessarily have ultraviolet light. Um, and uh, But heat sources, uh, a heat um, a heat lamp. Um, we use the ceramic globes in our hospital enclosures. Um, uh, we have some enclosures that have additional mats. Um, they're all thermostatically controlled and relatively easy to clean. Um, we do use uh, our um, uh, F10 from our wonderful friends at um, uh, chemical essentials. Um, it's great for making, you know, I feel very confident that most of the viral diseases um, that snakes are going to have, we're going to be able to clean the, those enclosures out and ensure that uh, they're safe for future use. Um, 
and a couple of refugia, a couple of hides um, just placed in a position. Usually we use disposable things that we can toss each time, uh, cardboard boxes of various sizes or um, little pieces of bark that the uh, reptile, the snake can get under. Um, and of course, uh, we do get to see some venomous reptiles and uh, we try to, uh, we get only keep those in locked containers and, um, and there's specific staff members who have uh, experience and training with those, working with the owners uh, to ensure that no one is in any danger. Absolutely. And I think the key there is, Mark, and you've hit on all of those, is that it doesn't have to be anything fancy. And hospitalisation of reptiles is it's it's concentrating on those those basics there, um, hygiene and having a temperature gradient in the enclosure. But we're not housing them, hopefully, for very long because we're either going to send them home in a body bag or, or hopefully send them home with the client. So um, we don't need all the environmental enrichment products in there. We don't require the UV lighting, as you mentioned. So um, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. And for those vets who are only dealing with the occasional snake, it can be something quite simple. It may be a modified little um, dog or cat box as long as it's escape proof and they can provide a temperature gradient in there. So, yes, that's hospitalisation. Number six, Mark, is feeding. And it relates to the hospitalisation here as well, doesn't it, Mark, in that most hospitalised snakes will not require feeding because most snakes are probably fed anything from every one to three or four weeks, um, typically a whole frozen thawed um, rodent. So we don't usually need to feed them unless we've got a particularly debilitated animal that may we may have there longer term that we are trying to feed up and, and, and get um, some condition back on that animal. And one of the key things that I often mention to vets when they, they're they a little bit confused about how often reptiles should be fed as a, as a general rule, Mark, is and, and potentially how, how, how long you should starve them if we're doing routine procedures on these snakes or, or reptiles in general, Mark, is to starve them for one feed period. So what does that mean? It, it is if you are, for instance, taking a lump off a snake, you would, and it's a routine procedure, it's not an emergency, you would ask the client to not feed that snake for one feed period. And if they are, they are feeding their snakes every two, that snake every two weeks, they would starve it for one to two weeks before it's brought into the surgery for the um, anaesthesia in the surgery. A comparison with that, even though we're talking about snakes here, would be, say, lizards. A lot of lizards are fed every day or maybe every two or three days. So if that was coming in for a routine surgical procedure, we would ask the client to starve their lizard for one to two days or so. So that's and, feeding, um, I, I do uh, – you, you've uh, made the point. I, we very rarely feed the snakes in hospital. We, it just makes for problems if you're trying to do that. So letting go of that – sense that you've got to feed them to keep them well, um, particularly with snakes, is a good one. Um, but it does lead us on to um, the, 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 you mentioned in your description there, those occasional cases which are, um, which for a variety of disease reasons have switched off the whole need to feed um, and they've become cachectic um, and those snakes will benefit um, for, from some uh um, enteral supportive care, they, uh, getting some um, 
nutrition into them, having that whole metabolism because their whole digestive system literally switches off and, um, and uh, the blood flow is different, the, um, the uh, actual growth of cells in the gut is different. And if you can, uh, in those snakes that have slipped into that uh, negative energy balance and disease process, sometimes enteral feeding can be life-saving. And where it's once again, it's not particularly difficult for most um, uh, uh, general accession veterinary practices. We use those um, soft rubber tube feeding catheters. Um, we uh, use the standard sort of recovery diet or uh, Royal Cannon recovery diet or Hills AD food mixed up into a, um, a slurry and uh, gently lubricating the tube and sliding it uh, into the esophagus. Um, and delivering a, a, a feed can often activate um, the gastrointestinal tract, provide energy to the circulatory system, which is uh, then spread out through the body and um, trigger the metabolic processes, which can help with healing, Brendan. Are you with me? You've, you've gone, Brendan. You've disappeared. <laughs> Guess what? I had my microphone on mute. It has to happen every couple of episodes, doesn't it, Mark? <laughs> Number eight is analgesia. And, uh, gee, you, everybody's probably getting a little tad tired of, us, of, of you and I saying the same thing over and over again, but I'm going to say it again, Mark. Analgesia is important. So we worry about uh, or we talk about multimodal analgesia in reptiles. What works and what doesn't work? Well, we've spoken about this in Great detail in several previous podcasts, including podcast number one, Mark. You remember our very first podcast was called The Pain of It All, Analgesia in Unusual Pets. So for those of you who haven't uh, gone back to the past and have a blast from the past, go and listen to episode number one again after after listening to the rest of this one. But, yeah, various opioids have been used in reptiles with success, Mark, and we, we particularly like the mu agonists such as methadone and morphine. They seem to be effective in reptiles. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, they may work, they may not work. Um, so just be wary about just using a non-steroidal alone in a snake. It may not be providing appropriate or effective analgesia in them. And we also use local anaesthetics or even splash anaesthetic, um, local anaesthetic use with surgical procedures as well, don't we, Mark, as part of the multimodal analgesic approach to snake analgesia, Mark. So that's number eight, analgesia. Don't forget it's about It's absolutely critical. And, um, and, and once again, Brendan, the key thing about uh, our multimodal analgesia in reptiles is that um, it's easily done with the same drugs that, uh, routinely in most um, uh, small animal practices. So um, I, I encourage everyone to pay attention, get those mu agonists into their reptiles whenever they think there's a chance they could be in pain. And one of the times they could be in pain um, is when they have uh, wounds. Wounds are an exceedingly common thing for us to have presentations for our snakes. Um, they uh, do seem to have a bit of a habit of finding if there's anything in the enclosure which is sharp, maybe part of the the, uh, the shield over the heat source or um, there will often be an inadvertent screw left lying around uh, with just the tip of it, um, you know, as the wood 
before the structure is screwed together, a point might just poke out. Our snakes seem to have particular skill at finding those things and rubbing against them and uh, and getting a tear in their skin. And uh, and those wounds are very common. And, and as well, um, most people will not... Um, you know, it's against the law to provide live prey, but we still on occasion see, um, uh, you know, snakes that have been chewed on by um, various prey animals that uh, have been left in the enclosure. So the wounds are, um, uh, yes. are, are a common presentation and they're, they're good because they heal and they heal if all the pre-existing um, conditions for wound healing are set, and particularly if we use um, some of our uh, wound care um, materials, we often use um, uh, flamazine, sulfur sulfadiazine, um, and uh, we're increasingly using our F10 barrier ointment. Um, we've had a couple of cases where we've tried various honeys, the Manuka brand, um, and they also work, but crikey, they make a bit of a sticky mess all over the place. Um, so I think. There are a variety of wound care gels and uh, ointments, um, and the reptile skin, despite its uh, unique nature, the uh, nature of our snakes, those wounds heal very well if they're cared for well. Yes, and I find them quite satisfying treating those wounds in snakes, Mark, because um, the vast majority of them do do. Excellent, um, as you mentioned. Number 10, well, this is our, our last little um, top 10 treatment tips. We could always go to number 11. You could always add another another one, crank it up to 11, Mark, um, and that is euthanasia, so end-of-life um, issues with them. So, And we have gone through this on previous podcasts as well, but the two-stage euthanasia technique is what we recommend for reptiles, not just snakes but all reptiles. So for those unfamiliar, it involves sedating or anaesthetizing the snake first before we euthanize it. Why? Because the pentobarbitone or the euthanasia solution is extremely alkaline and it hurts if given to an animal that is not given in directly into the in, um, intravenously. So and most of these snakes that we are euthanizing, like most patients that we're euthanizing, uh, are compromised. So finding that ventral tail vein can be a challenge in some of these animals. So take your time, sedate or euthanize it first, uh, sedate or anaesthetize it first before you euthanize it. And that's as simple as reaching for the off-the-shelf off the sedatives or anaesthetic drugs that you already have in your practice. That may be using some malfaxan, it may be metatomidine, it may be high doses of our opiates like our methadone and injecting that snake either subcutaneous or preferably I usually go intramuscular in the apaxial muscles, Mark, is where I go, I'm, I'm lateral to the spine there and pop the animal back into its um, in warmed enclosure so it's at its preferred optimal body temperature and wait, just wait 15 minutes, wait half an hour until that animal is, um, that snake is sedate. Another medication, I'd, 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 a sedative I'd use, I'd reach for very frequently with, with snakes and, and most reptiles, Mark, to sedate them first would be ketamine as well. Yes, it will probably sting with that initial injection, but it won't it won't sting as much or hurt as much as, as giving the pentobarbitone solution intra-snake. 
So I would sedate or anaesthetise it first. Once it's sedate, then you can poke around trying to find that ventral tail vein. Or if it's anaesthetised or very heavily sedated, we can we can try and locate that that heart mark and, and go intracardiac with it. So this two step euthanasia technique, it's simple, it's low cost, and and it provides a gentle death for the patient. I I. <laughs> Well, well Hello, that Mark. was one of those situations <laughs> where, where most of the time I listen to you, um, uh, you know, and I, I'm and in full such full agreement with everything that you say. We do seem to have this like never-ending pat each other on the back because we do the same thing. But I've always got just you, when you talk, I always have um, just one or two more perspectives to add, and I feel the same when I talk. You just come up with those great. Uh, different views but that time your euthanasia your final final top 10 tip um you you uh nailed it to the post and uh um and uh, delivered it where i had nothing more to say oh thank you mark i'm feeling very warm and fuzzy um the bromance continues um and just just for, um, one final comment about reptiles that uh, we um, we we often we often state Mark, and that's a note on the emergencies in reptiles, and that many supposed emergencies in reptiles are often the result of long term illness. So you know the classic comment I usually make to to vet students and, and veterinarians is that emergencies happen slowly in reptiles, in that they're often a long-term illness and eventually they hit this point where they crash and it has been going on for a long period of time in them. So so when you are seeing that reptile or snake, if we stick with snakes, that, that looks like it is is crashing, um, chances are pretty high that it's a long-term issue with that animal. And unfortunately, a, a large percentage of them mark a, a long-term husbandry issue, so something not quite right with the setup, with the enclosure, with the feeding, all those types of things that have caused it. So so there's 10, well, actually, it's 11 now, isn't it? I told you we'd crank it up to 11, Mark. Um, there's 11 top tips um, for dealing with snakes for practitioners who are not particularly um, experienced with dealing with our little slithery reptile friends and um I hope everybody enjoyed this podcast, and we've actually finished a little bit early for once, Mark. On um, uh, we should maybe talk about a few of our um, stories that we were going to add into podcast, but we're not going to, Mark. We're going to finish early, and I'm going to cut to our outro guy, and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time